Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. The word of the Lord. So there is this strange thing that happens when you commemorate an event like this year after year. And that strange thing is that somehow these things become normalized. Uh, somehow the not only miraculous, but also just downright unbelievable story of Christ and his resurrection becomes somehow the same old thing. And I was thinking, and maybe this is just me, but it can be challenging, at least for me, to preach on days like this because there's, there's, there's no like fresh take on the resurrection of Jesus. There, there, there are not like new ways of looking at this. There aren't unexplored pathways. This is a story that remains constant, and the truth of this story remains constant for us. Thankfully, it is not something that changes from year to year. And its meaning is not something that meant something 2,000 years ago to the original hearers, and then, and then maybe something 1,000 years later, and now it means something completely different to us. Those things are not true. This is something that has meant what it has always meant, even now. And so as I thought about that, it dawned on me that the thing that really changes from year to year is not this story of Christ. It's not the message of the gospel. The thing that changes from year to year is me, and it's you, it's, it's us. And it, it's the way that we engage with this story that changes. And, and I think it's quite possible that as we engage with the story of the resurrection today, that you may be looking at it with fresh eyes because your world has in some way been turned upside down over the last month. And, and maybe, maybe more perhaps than any other time in your life, you might be looking to the gospel with an increased focus because the rug has to a certain extent been pulled out from under other, frankly, lesser pursuits in your life. Pursuits that have taken perhaps the priority for you. And so today, my hope, my prayer, um, my hope is that the fact that this story is unchanging, that that will actually bring you great comfort in a world where things seem to be constantly changing and where things seem to be kind of completely up in the air. But more than comfort, I pray that viewing the resurrection 
through the lens of our current season, will actually call us to even more fully embrace the way of Jesus as our way of life. Not just something that we mentally assent to, not just something that we casually affirm, but that the way of Jesus would truly become the central orienting access of our life. That it would be the thing that our life revolves around. So I was thinking about Jesus appearing uh, because there is this period of time following the resurrection where Jesus will just kind of appear out of nowhere to his followers. It'll, it's like one minute he's not in the room, then the next minute he's in the room. And, and as I was thinking about this, the passage that we read or that Justin read just a minute ago came to mind. And, and I'll read it again for you. This is the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3, starting in verse 1. Paul says, if you then have been raised with Christ, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So Paul then goes on in Colossians 3 to detail the parts of our lives that we should put to death and, and then also the characteristics of Christ that we should take on. And, and the master characteristic that he mentions is the characteristic of love. Like if there isn't love, then what is the use of any of these other things? And so he says, above all else, take that on and make that the core of who you are. But but it's that verse four that I just read that to me is, is, it's kind of enigmatic, but yet at the same time, it's really compelling to me. Verse four says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. You are not who you were created to be. Just, just let that kind of sink in for a minute. You are not currently who you were created to be. In, in today's world, we all have these sort of pseudo-theological beliefs about ourselves and who God has made us to be. But the reality is, is that in our current iteration, we are nothing like what God originally made us to be. Some of y'all may be familiar with the Enneagram. If you aren't, it's this really interesting personality assessment tool that I've, I've found to be really helpful in my own life. And Justin and I also use it as we coach other people as well. Um, it's become, I think, helpful to me because it has helped me develop a greater sense of self-awareness. That's not something I naturally do super well. That could be true for you also. Um, I, I just think in general, um, something that's characteristic of many of us is that we don't tend to be all that self-aware. Um, but it's helped me see not only what I do, but, but also maybe why I do some of the things that I do. And the Enneagram uses a, a number system to plot out different personality types. And there are like a variety of amalgams and different combinations of personality types. But the piece that has been maybe the most helpful to me is that for each personality type, there are nine stated levels of health. So it will give you some insight into what someone with your particular unique personality looks like if they're operating in like a top tier healthy 
place, um, as well as a snapshot of what it looks like to be in an unhealthy place, and, and all of the various shades in between. And so I like this system a lot. It's not like a Christian thing in particular. It's just kind of a helpful tool that's out there, and I, and I like it a lot because it's been helpful to me, but, but there's also a problem with it. And they're a problem with a lot of these kind of personality assessment tools that are out there. And, and the problem is that I can come to believe inadvertently that my goal in life is actually simply to be just the healthiest version of myself possible. To be like the best me that I can be. That, that my goal is to take all of my quirks and my experiences and my traumas and my gifts and talents and my greatest temptations, all those things and kind of put them together in a pot and then do the hard work of becoming peak Weston by dealing with past traumas and by embracing the good parts of my life. And, and listen, don't hear me saying that those aren't some admirable pursuits and that those aren't helpful pursuits. This has been something that's been very helpful to me. But yet at the same time, to be the most healthy most present, best functioning Weston that I can be is also not exactly the goal. Paul says something about the resurrection that we should sit up and take notice of. He says the death and resurrection of Jesus is not just something that Christ did for you. It's also something that Christ has called you into, right? He uses this language that says that you have actually died as well. You have died, and now your life is hidden in Christ. And so the point is, Jesus' desire for me is actually not that I would, through my own effort or through my own action, it's not that through my own hard work that I would become somehow peak Weston, whatever that is. His desire is actually that rather than moving towards a better me, through my own effort, that instead I would move towards the me that he is remaking me to be. Not just a better version of my current self, not just a more virtuous version or a more moral version or a less tempted or something version of myself. Paul says it's not about how I can make myself better. It's more about how can I die to myself and be remade in the image of Christ. When that happens, then I am truly moving toward who I was originally created to be, long before sin and brokenness ever entered into the mix. It's the resurrection, guys, that actually makes that possible. It's not something I can simply do on my own. It's, it's this thing that when Christ appears, when Jesus comes out of the tomb, when he comes back again in the last day and, and, and redeems the church fully and brings us into the kingdom of God fully, when he appears, then the real me will appear. That, that is when the true me, the me that he has recreated me to be, will reappear as he perfects me fully and does the same for you. But if Jesus doesn't come out of the tomb, if, if, if Easter is just a facade, if this is not real, if this is just a farce, if it's a lie, then my only hope is me 
And, and I honestly don't like my chances with just me. So one simple point for us to grasp today. The resurrection demands a response of obedience from you. If your response to the resurrection is, oh, that's interesting, right? Then, then maybe you aren't grasping the gravity of this whole thing. Just, just for a moment, think about if, the, if this is really true, then, then really take a moment to seek to grasp the full implications of this. I think that our primary response to the resurrection demands a response from us that is us going and telling others. This is the command that we see twice in this passage. The angel says, yes, come in and see the empty tomb. See it for yourself. Explore it for yourself. But then go quickly. Like, go quickly and tell other people. So the women encounter the risen Christ and they cling to him in that moment and they worship him. But then what does he do? He says, go and tell the disciples. This is evangelism. And, and, and that's a word that conjures a lot of, honestly, negative connotations potentially for many of us because of some of the misuses of that word and, and just the misuses of evangelism. It conjures maybe notions of like televangelism and all of the abuses that things like that have brought about in today's world. But, but yet this is evangelism. Our obedience in evangelism in going and telling people about Christ and, and in going and being Christ to our world is directly related to our identity being found more and more in Christ. When our identity is found more and more in Christ, our identity becomes that of one who goes and tells. Remember, he is remaking us. We are being reborn. And you may say, well, Weston, I, you know, I just don't think I have like the gift of evangelism. Guys, that is ridiculous. Like, is the tomb empty? Ha have you been saved from death and hell? Have you been given a gift that you could never afford? Has your sin been washed away so that you might be called a son or daughter of the king? Like, have all of those things happened to you? Have you been entrusted with the message of the gospel, has the Holy Spirit of God come to indwell your life? Listen to me. If God himself has come to live inside you, it's blasphemous to say, well, I just don't have the gift of evangelism. You have the greatest evangelist to ever exist living inside of you. How dare you say that? How dare you say, I can't do it. I can't tell people. I'm too awkward. Guys, you have God's spirit inside you. The more concerned that we are with preserving our own image, the more concerned we are with saving face or, or, or preserving our reputation around other people, the more we're concerned with being us and not being Christ, the less and less we will take him on in our lives, the less urgency we will feel about sharing the good news that he is alive with other people. We have to embrace the resurrection as not just something that was done for us, but something we are invited into so that we might die and take on Christ as our identity. Notice for the women at the tomb, immediate action is required. Go quickly. If Jesus is truly alive, 
The same thing is true for us. I think immediate action is required on our part. Go and tell other people. Later at the end of Matthew 28, Jesus appears to his disciples, and again, immediate action is required. This is verse 19 of Matthew 28. Jesus says, you know this, go make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. This is your new identity. You know, what's amazing to me as I read through the account of the resurrection is that Jesus seems to have this this attitude of, well, of course I'm alive. Like, of course I'm here. Everybody is so bewildered by what has happened, and yet Everything has happened exactly as Jesus said it would happen, right? Everything has taken place in the way that Jesus said it would take place. And then when he does rise from the dead, everybody's like, what's going on here? Like, people can't believe that this has happened. And it's not just the disciple Thomas who doubted. What, what we learn is that many people doubted. Many people struggled to fully synthesize and process what was happening, even though they had had plenty of time to deal with the fact that this was what was going to take place. I just don't think anybody ever really believed it until it actually happened. And so Jesus kind of has this nonchalant, like, why are you surprised attitude for all people that he encounters? And people want to either cling to him and worship him, and and they're just so amazed, or people are doubtful. It's, It's really amazing how people respond to him. And so I guess a question is, how are you responding to him today? Like, as you encounter this today, is, just, is this just this same old normal story that you've heard and that just kind of goes in one ear and out the other and washes over you? Or are you seeing potentially or are you being reminded of the fact that this is what is true? This is what is real. This is what our life is all about, guys. This is what should be at the core of everything for us. This is, you know, what he did for the disciples when he told them, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He, he was essentially saying to them, leave your old identity, leave the old you, this old you that was just like a regular fisherman, and take on this new identity, which is a new purpose. It's a new goal. It's a new way of living. It's a new way of doing this thing. This is what is true and real. This is who you are now. So if the resurrection doesn't spur you to action, then I worry, guys, that you simply don't have eyes to see what this really is and how much you and I really need it. As kids, some of us may have been spoon-fed the notion that the empty tomb was only about one day going to heaven when we die. And that, you know, we just kind of have to bide our time now before we fly away to the sweet by and by. That's not what this is. Are those things true? Absolutely. But the reality is that the resurrection is also about us entering into that new life now. It's about us being reborn now. And it's about us taking the gospel to our neighbors because we love them and because we should be propelled by love. Now, if these things are true and we do not tell other people or show other people, then it is the greatest act uh, or the greatest display of a lack of love that we could possibly have for the world around us. If these things are true and we tell no one, 
then all we are doing is truly displaying hatred for the rest of the world. Jesus' commission to his disciples in John's gospel was stated a little bit differently than what we just read in Matthew. What he says is this, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Jesus tells his disciples in the same way that the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And so if the tomb is empty, if this is real and true, we cannot be silent. And I think in this season, more than any other season possibly in my lifetime, I think we are dealing with a watching world that is waiting and looking for answers from the church. They're waiting for us to give an account for the hope that is within us. And if it becomes clear that the church the whole time, that our hope was really just in the things of this world and not in the things of Christ, there is nothing compelling about that. There is nothing about that that people will want to subscribe to. But if our hope is actually not in this world, if our hope is actually in in things to come, if our hope is actually in a miraculous and kind of unbelievable story of an empty tomb and a risen Lord and Savior, and that really does change us and change the way we live and change our goals and change the things we long for and change the way we make decisions, if, if that is true of us, I do believe that people will look at us and say, what is that? Because there are no other places where I'm seeing that. There's no other place where I can get that. And we need to be prepared to share, to go and tell. And so with those things in mind, let us go to him in prayer this morning and pray for his Holy Spirit to fill us, to encourage us, to equip us, to inspire us, and to project us out into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, into Zoom meetings, to be the hands and feet of Christ, to be salt and light for our watching world. Let us pray. Jesus, we give you honor and glory this morning. We praise you for the miracle of your resurrection. And even though people have for many centuries now sought to discredit you, have sought to say that these things aren't true, God, we, we give you glory and honor today that these things are perhaps the truest thing that we could possibly ever know. And Father, even though we don't understand everything, even though we look at our world and we see brokenness and it's hard to grasp and reconcile things sometimes, God, I, I pray today that through your Spirit you would help us to find rest and peace that surpasses understanding. Help us to find life and hope in your word. And Father, do not let us keep it to ourselves. So inspire us, so encourage us, God, so energize us to go and tell others and show others that, that we can't even help it. God, I pray that truly as a church body, we would be uh, the city on a hill that is described in Scripture, this place where it's like the light can't help but shine. 
And I pray that that wouldn't just be some empty metaphor we use, but that it truly would reflect who we are as individuals and who we are as the body of Christ gathered. Thank you for your word, Father. Thank you for the truth and hope of the resurrection. Thank you for Christ and his sacrifice. In your holy name we pray. Amen.